I'm Emily Joan Ellie. Wow, I paused on my own name. Let's read. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we've got it. Welcome to the East Lansing Insider. I'm Emily Joan Elliott here today with Alice Drager and Andrew Graham. It is 1 p.m. on Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. Andrew and Alice, say hello to everyone, please. Uh, how's everybody doing? It's a cold day, hello finally. I'm actually, please. yeah, it's a cold day in November. I'm actually kind of enjoying it, finally. I, I was not actually a fan of this warm spell we just had, so... It's I'm really confused the, cold. the birds in my backyard, I have to say. It's confused my dog. Well, two shifts away from Andrew's dog to the issue of transparency. Um, we're going to move now into our headlines rounds up. On Monday, we had an article by Andrew that talked about the HRC trying to request videos from ELPD and the lack of transparency there. Tuesday morning, we had uh, the update from school board about the metrics they'll be using to reopen, which has been long debated and long sought which specific metrics would be considered. We then had this morning two articles, one about the MSUFCU construction and an update about the police oversight study committee. And Alice and Andrew were at last night's city council meeting and have a lot to share about Harbor Bay's bonds, the removal of underage tenants from Newman Lofts, and Alice also will t- touch briefly on what's going to happen with the Evergreen properties. Um, so to start us off today, Andrew, you had the HRC article about requesting documents from the police, which also came up about council. So can you tell us a little about the transparency issues um, in that? So... It, it goes back all the way to June and the summer and in response to both the Anthony Loggins and uh, Tito Gacido incidents with Officer Andrew Stevenson. In response, there was a push to review the, the department and the city's use of force policy. And as part of that, city council basically approved a resolution. Um, and following that, the HRC basically requested, I think it was originally 20 um, incidents worth of body camera footage, um, and police reports. reports. Yeah. And police reports. And then that was in July, I think June or July, they didn't see anything until mid September, according to Chuck Grigsby, who is the chair of the HRC. And when they did see videos, they only saw one that was actually related to their request they saw two and one was unrelated to their request. And basically it had been whittled down from 20 to 12. And then from those 12, I believe it was five had ongoing litigation. And then another five had HIPAA related um, reasons for not showing them. But basically the HRC was just frustrated because they, they want to watch these videos to understand how force is being applied by East Lansing police. And the only way to understand that is to see how it's being applied. And they basically feel like they're being stonewalled for whatever reasons in trying to see these videos. And a really interesting inflection point and uh, sort of 
hot point during the HRC meeting was council member Ron Bacon was really asking like, well, what's the, what's the goal of this? Like, why do you need to see these videos? These people like, like the you know, sort of that the police would be uncomfortable sharing them. And while I understand that, like he didn't, the point is basically that the HRC does not know where they're going to go with the information they get in the videos until they see what the information they get from the videos is. So it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing, but they have to watch a, a, a decent chunk of videos. I mean, it might be 10, it might be 15, it might be 30, I'm not sure, but more than two before they have an idea of really what they're trying to address and what they're trying to change. And, and so the idea, more than two handpicked by the police. Right. Right. And so the idea that they're needing to determine what they're trying to change about the use of force policy before they see how the use of force policy actually exists is frankly ridiculous because you can't assess something you don't understand. And really all they're trying to do is in concert with the police department. I think that's something Chuck Grigsby has been very clear about is he's, he, he wants this to be something where the police are comfortable sharing this, the HRC, eventually the police oversight commission sees them. And then it's a collaborative process of here's what we see in here. That's a problem. Or here's a pattern we see emerging and how can we correct it? Like it's not, they're not trying to play gotcha. They're trying to improve policing. That really is the goal here but they feel like they need to watch these videos and they're just not getting access to them. And Andrew and I were quite shocked yesterday at city council. We were texting quite heatedly back and forth, listening to city manager, George Lahanis make claims about why these videos couldn't be released because we know for a fact videos have been released under the conditions that Lahanis said they could not be released. We know the police reports have been released under the conditions Lahanis has said they can't be released. So that was making no sense to us. And Andrew's going to be bringing a big report on this and showing people that, in fact, we've, through the Freedom of Information Act, gotten videos and police reports of the type that Lahanis claims are not available. I mean, there are other disturbing things about what Lahanis was saying last night. He was implying at one point that the reason we couldn't be given a lot of information is because when use of force was used, there was also a mental health crisis issue. Well, our data collections show that's rarely the case, but also if they thought that was the case, that use of force is frequently being used when people are having mental health care crisis, uh, we should be concerned about that. Yeah, it just seems like the sort of classic, it's easier to just not have the problem looked at to not turn the light on and really try and fix something that a lot of people are very serious about trying to fix, including city council and the city of East Lansing. I, they're forming a police oversight commission, hopefully in the next year or so. And so it just, it seems like the sort of thing And Chuck Grigsby really made this clear at the HRC meeting. Like he wants to have this fight now. He's willing to go through this pain now so that when the police oversight committee exists, they're not having to, you know, go to war with the city just to try and get the materials they need to actually do their job. Right. And this, this really, as you probably have picked up, this is not building trust at this point among the players. It's no. causing a huge amount of friction and eroding a lot of goodwill, I think, in ways that are um, pretty visible to us at this point. And we should contextualize this. So Andrew and I and other Eli reporters have struggled, as you have, Emily, to get information of the city, not just with regard to policing. Uh, but for example, so the study committee, the first time it met, apparently was given a, a sheath of 13 documents to look at. 
that was not posted on the agenda. I ended up having to file a Freedom of Information Act, a FOIA request, asking to get those 13 documents. And I was told the city needed extra time to find and retrieve them. I mean, give me a break. Frankly, they were in a folder and Chuck Grigsby gave them to me when he knew I wanted them. But the city did not need more time to find and retrieve them. And similar to this uh, with the Center City District bonds, I asked for the information on who sent in interest on those bonds when there was an RFP or request for proposals that went out and asked for which companies might be interested in refinancing them. The city still three weeks later has not given me the information because they claim they still need more time to find and retrieve those records, which would have just been a bunch of emails stuck in a folder. I mean, this is the kind of thing we run into all the time, and it frankly makes me really frustrated. And what I want our listeners to understand is that we're not pestering them for this stuff because we like to be pains in the neck. We're pestering them for this stuff because the only way for us to understand things like use of force in policing or what's happening with the bonds or what information various commissions are making decisions off of or where your tax dollars are going or where your tax dollars are being wasted, the only way we can find that stuff out is if we have open government. And the city of East Lansing resists and resists and resists. We should just rename this podcast Eli's Fourth Estate or something like that. <laughs> we should. But Alice, you brought up about the Center City District bonds, which also came up at council last night. And I know that's been an area of interest for you. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about how that discussion went. Yeah, I paused my writing of that report um, so that we could do our recording, but I think we'll have that out later today. Today is Wednesday, so we should have that out by the time this podcast airs so folks can look at that. But basically what happened was Lisa Babcock, who's on council, poked and prodded a lot of of, um, Bill Danhoff of Miller Canfield, the bond council, and asked a lot of questions about the bonds and got a lot of interesting answers. What we know now is that the bondholder, which is Scottsdale Capital, which is the developer's father, has not actually asked to be paid back at this time. The reason the city and the BRA are presuming, are, sorry, are pursuing refinancing is because they are looking into whether or not it's in the best interest to pay them off at this time. I suspect, based on what was being said last night, that they're going to find that, in fact, doing the refinance is not in the best interest of the city or the Brownfield Redevelopment Authority at this time. And if that's the case, there's going to be an interesting situation because um, Mark Bell's father is going to be stuck with $25 million in bonds that are going to be paid back rather slowly from the taxes off the project. So we'll be bringing more information on that. Andrew and I did a deep dive, as you know, Emily, a couple weeks ago about these bonds. So folks are interested in that. Look for the previous episode of East Lansing Insider at eastlansinginfo.news, and you'll be able to learn all about those bonds. But we'll be bringing a report soon about what else we learned last night. Yeah, yes. at this point, the the bonds, the bonds that Scottsdale Capital, aka Peter Paul Bell, hold with the current tax capture on the Center City District are effectively the financial equivalent of a bag of dog poo that some teenager left on your doorstep. Like they're not, they I mean, are not they, returning the money that they're supposed to be returning just based on the tax capture. They will, they will eventually. Right. But, but right, but right now, now they are not. Yeah. And I think um, the most interesting thing that happened last night was Lisa asked about the developer debt service guarantee, which basically says that if there's not enough money, it's not the VRA's problem to make up the gap. It's the developer's problem. This is an extraordinary clause in this bond that we think Mark Meadows must have put in there that basically says if there's a gap, it's not the city's problem. It's the developer's problem. So the VRA is supposed to go to Mark Bell, the son, and say, 
we're short $2.4 million to pay your dad on December 1st. So we need you to write us a check for $2.4 million so we can make the payment that's due. Uh, and what Danhoff said last night is something kind of vague about that. And he said so far they haven't asked the developer for that check. <laughs> and I don't know that Bell Sr. is going to be demanding that check because where is he going to get that money from his son? Uh, as Andrew has said, that's a lot of allowance withholding for a lot of years. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think we were also talking about this earlier on our, our Wednesday morning phone call, but Alice, you've mentioned that there's a lot of people you've talked to in the finance industry who basically have pointed out that this deal, it's just too, it's too weird to really attract a lot of interest and to, it, it's, there's no real way to make money for anybody to hold these bonds likely. And that's going to really limit responses. And so it's just yeah, more likely than not that nothing happens for at least the near future, I'd suppose. Right. The bonds would have to be loaded up with so much stuff that they begin to not have enough tax money to guarantee that they'll get paid back. And that's particularly true because what's interesting is Mark Bell, the son, is trying to get the tax rate lowered on the properties. If that happens, there's less tax capture to pay back the bonds. So the more he prods in the direction of trying to get his tax rates lowered, the more he screws with the image of Newman Lofts and says it's not really viable as is and it, you know the tax rate needs to be lowered, the less likely it is that a new bond investor will be attracted because they'll recognize this bond is very unpredictable. It's only to be paid back from tax captured. We're not even sure what the tax capture is going to be. So it is, as experts in the field have called it, pointy, uh, it has sharp edges, and it is hairy. These are the terms they use to talk about a bond that's a stinky kind of bond. Sure. So something that came up in conversation was you had mentioned council member Lisa Babcock was really pushing for transparency at the meeting. So I was wondering if either of you could talk about some of the comments she made and maybe a favorite quote of the evening. Because to quote from our earlier meeting, she was on fire last night. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to go with, because this this was a, a children's book that I enjoyed. Um, I do remember both of my parents reading it to me and my brother when we were younger. Um, but The Pigeon Driving the Bus, in allusion to Harbor Bay's sort of legal games, tactics, letter-sending rhetoric all that sort of stuff but basically she said i don't know I can't, i'm not gonna get the exact quote right but it was something along the lines of we got to stop letting the pigeon drive the bus or something like that in response to them fighting to say oh we we want to like we have to get rid of the 55 plus restriction revealing that they're already renting to people under the age of 55 in violation of zoning code and the master development agreement now arguing that and arguing they have legal standing to do that which they don't and now they're saying well, we'll stop doing it if you give us 60 days and don't evict these people and we can find an agreement to like rent to people under 55, which well, is still illegal. Sure is the right. Not- and like they're trying, they're saying like their good faith is like, we're going to stop breaking the law while we try to find an agreement that lets us change a deal. It's like <laughs> they have no actual leverage. It's all imagined. Like I, basically there's no impetus for the city to do anything other than tell them to follow the law. And it's just like Lisa was just kind of pointing out how they're just throwing stuff at the wall. And Andrew's going to be bringing a report on this, but there was a vote four to one. Only Lisa voted against giving them more time in terms of enforcement of the zoning law. Um, And I do understand. 
Yeah, I understand the, other part the felt argument. It would be unseemly to be essentially evicting the tenants who are well, and, were rented not to so, their own fault. So that is a very complex matter too, because you don't want to be the the maybe direct reason, even though they're not the direct reason or perceived to be the reason that these people had to move out. But I think that's that's a little effectively wrong for a couple reasons. For one, Harbor Bay knowingly let these people sign these leases against the development agreement and these well, people they, wait we have to point out harbor bay believes the development agreement yes. gave them the right to use that yes based on so, the interpretations we've heard and from the city's legal interpretation it is illegal and they have issued them a notice of zoning of being violation of the zoning code but basically from the city's interpretation harbor bay let these people lease these apartments knowing from the city's perspective that it was not allowed and as Alice, you and I have pointed out multiple times, these are not cheap apartments. They they are not anything that like it, it's you. If you can live in one of the Newman Lofts apartments or afford one of them, you are probably capable of finding somewhere else to stay. And I know that sounds kind of callous, but at the end of the day, what city council ended up doing is effectively setting a precedent for someone to do something illegal sort of argue some weird good faith and then get more time and like get to sit down at the bargaining table which i don't know if anything's going to come of it but it just seems to me like you said they were doing something illegal and they haven't changed that behavior at all why would you change your course of action yeah i have a something we might want to clarify for our listeners is when was Harbor Bay first notified that they should be working to remove those underage residents? So when were they notified and what was the initial deadline and what will be the new deadline? So they were notified, I believe, September 22nd or 20th, towards the end of September, which would give them until roughly the end of November. I think November 20th was roughly the original deadline. And now I think what um, Tom Fahrenbach said at council on Tuesday night was that with the new 60 days to, you know, potentially come to some agreement, uh, we'll be hearing back on this in January, I believe is what he said. And again, I do just want to make clear that Harbor Bay's claim is that they thought this was a legal thing to do. They thought they could rent up to 20% of the Newman Lofts apartments to people under the age of 55. The first they legally heard from the city that this was not okay was relatively recently. Um, and so their claim is that they just didn't have the same understanding as the city. They've come back pretty much with their tail between the legs because they've said in their most recent letter that they're not going to pursue removing the 55 plus age restriction as they wanted to and that they're not going to in the future rent to any additional underage people. So they've they've conceded a lot at this point. And the four who voted against uh, immediate enforcement when the 60 days is up basically felt that it would be better to just not be in the position of having the tenants having to move um, and that they would let that play out well. They basically have some sort of agreement. But I think the agreement may well consist of Harbor Bay acknowledging what the city is saying. That mm -hmm. might be the agreement. And it might be the case that Harbor Bay manages to get away with not paying the fines under the law. Um, the fines under the law are $100 per day per offense. And there are three apartments. We were originally told four. Now we're being told three, which is kind of curious that that number changed. Um, but it would be $100 a day per apartment. So it's $300 a day. 
And uh, in addition to that, there's a much larger issue than just the zoning code violation, which is that by doing this, they're also in violation of the master ground lease, which is the lease that gives them permission to be using city land. And that's part of what the city sent the notice about was the default on the ground lease. Very significant issue, extremely significant issue. If they default on the ground lease, the city can take very significant action in terms of the whole deal. Yeah, it seems like at this point, a, a, a win for both sides, I don't know, not really a win, but like a, a suitable option would be at the end of these three leases, you stop trying like Harbor Bay just starts trying to rent people over 55 and we don't talk about it again. And everyone just starts, you know, acting their age, more or less. Harbor Bay has started slightly more aggressively marketing towards 55 plus. We're starting to see more advertisement in that realm. So that's been interesting. Yeah. Yes. And I want to preface this comment by saying I was not at council last night. And from what I've heard from Alice and Andrew, this doesn't seem to have figured in. But it might not also be the best decision to evict people during a pandemic or ask them to relocate. Um, That is something that has come up elsewhere. That is a lot to put on people. So I could see that as a consideration as well. That's a good point, because even if nothing else, it means people having to move a lot of stuff around while huffing and puffing. And these are the kinds of things we're trying to avoid in terms of spreading disease. So Right. Yeah. Or bringing movers in and then you always have to get cable and Internet set up and that's more people <laughs> coming in and out. So, yes. well, yeah, and I'm not I think that's the 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 reasoning behind it was entirely good intentions and mm-hmm. like good, like uh, not coming from anything of other than trying to sort of not have bystanders take some harm in this case. But I do think it has potential repercussions that need to be considered Mm -hmm. otherwise. We try at Eli, you know, to understand everybody's point of view. And I think it wasn't difficult for Andrew and I to to understand all of the points of view on this one last night. We felt like everybody had good arguments and it was not difficult to understand how to represent those good arguments. Sometimes when we face reporting, we're in the difficult position where we feel like somebody just has made such a poor argument that in having to relay it, we're going to look like we're making fun of them and we're not trying to do that, but the argument was poor. In this case, it's, I think, pretty easy to understand what the different arguments were on the different sides. Yeah, and it's not it's not a simple thing to remedy one way or another. I mean, it, it, re- it requires somebody to be inconvenienced. Theoretically, if what the developers are doing is held up to be illegal, then they would be the ones dealing with the inconvenience because that's, you know, you break the law, you tend to be shouldered with the inconvenience of remedying it. Um, but absent of that, then it looks most likely like the people who would actually be inconvenienced are those three tenants. And that I, I totally understand, basically not wanting to put them in the, the field of fire on this one. I think really the most remarkable thing here is how this deal was just done in 2017 and it's blowing up in every direction. I mean, it's really surprising to me that this soon we're seeing so many points of contention. Yeah. We could really start a whole news organization discovering the Center City District. (laughs) Well, since we're not doing that, maybe I'll use this to segue to our discussion on what's going to happen with the Evergreen properties, another development issue in East Lansing. Yeah, we're still waiting to see uh, if River Caddis can bring it together and bring forward something. But um, 
What we know in the meantime is that council last night voted unanimously in favor of a, I think it was $1.3 million contract to do a major rebuild of infrastructure along Evergreen Avenue and to realign Albert Avenue. And um, this has been talked about for a long time because it's part of the whole redevelopment of that whole area near Valley Court Park. Uh, But it's becoming slightly more urgent because of the fact that the developer DRW Convexity, which built the Abbott and the Graduate Hotel, is supposed to start getting to work building the modern income housing uh, building, apartment building at the corner of Valley Court Drive and Evergreen Avenue, which is near the tennis courts of Valley Court Park. And to do that, they really have to know like what level the road is going to be, how the sewers are going to work. And so the city has finally moved on making a decision about how to handle that and how to also handle the straightening of Albert Avenue. There was a significant letter in the packet from People's Church talking about the problem of them losing substantial amounts of parking as a result of this revision. Uh, And we'll be bringing a story about that. But um, it is going to create a large amount of construction in the winter months, starting in the winter months, going through the beginning of the new year, going into the center of the new year along um, Evergreen Avenue. It, it does look like they're going to plan to take out a chunk of Evergreen Avenue's roadway and go ahead and turn it into a greenway, which is part of what's been talked about for a really long time. And so it's going to be a major revision of infrastructure in the area that ultimately will be good in terms of sewer and water and electrical and a whole bunch of other things, but will cause for a while a lot of disruption and will result in um, a lot of challenges in particular for People's Church. But that's part of why Director of Public Works Scott House wanted to get it going now is because during the pandemic, frankly, there's not a lot of people going to the church. It's also the situation, there's just not a lot of people moving around in that area. And so now is really the time to get this thing done, which is a major, major rebuild of the sewer system over there. Yeah, another thing that was interesting is in that, that area is the goings on with the MSUFCU building and um, Royal Vlahakis and the not the, Royal Vlahakis, well, not Royal Vlahakis, just Vlahakis, <laughs> and the the North Wall. I'm correct. Is that the North Wall of it? Correct. So we thought that the MSUFCU project was a sure thing and that it would get started probably by early in the new year, and now. It turns out a wrench has been thrown into the system, which is that they're building that north wall all the way up to the Dublin Square property, all the way up to the patio that's over there. And apparently um, the company that owns it, which is one of Paul Vlahakis's companies, owns the Dublin Square property. They want some sort of agreement with regard to a construction easement. It will be difficult for the construction company building for MSUFCU to do this without permission of that property owner. And apparently, Vlahakis is making some demands in that regard. We don't yet have the letter that he sent to um, MSUFCU. I'm trying to get that out of the city, but it's Veterans Day, so the city is closed today. I'm hoping to get that soon. But we do have a story up now on our front page at eastlansinginfo.news that talks about this problem. This could be significant. This could actually kill this deal, which we all thought was a done deal. So what city council voted on last night was an extension of the sale agreement of the public property lot four to MSUFCU. Just to remind folks, the only thing MSUFCU can build on that property, according to the vote of the people of East Lansing to sell the property, is an office building of this type. So MSUFCU can't close on the property and buy the property and use it for something else or sell it. They have to plan to do this project. If this project gets killed, what that means is the land doesn't get sold and it comes, it's still in the pro- ownership of the city. 
And then the city is going to have to decide what to do with it. And because these, this property is worth a fair bit, it requires consent of the voters if it's going to be sold. Um, previously, Vlahakis Development had partnered with a company called Royal Properties, and that was the project we called Royal Vlahakis, the proposal that never came to fruition. They wanted to use Lot 4, and they were going to do a ground lease that looks a lot like what happened in Center City to get around the need for the people of East Lansing to give their consent through a vote to sell. Now that we don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next on this project. I, I just remember you telling me something about, or us, the, uh, oh, there's like a legal workaround if the construction hangs down from the north side, but doesn't actually get built on the ground. And you know, it's going to be this ridiculousness. <laughs> I never thought I would learn so much zoning law, but a little bit of zoning law I'm, I'm learning now is about what you're allowed to do on somebody else's property for your own construction on your property, according to the law under Michigan. And I'm still trying to understand all of this. But needless to say, it is difficult to go onto somebody else's property to do construction on your own property without their permission. There are some things you can do temporarily, but it would be difficult to go over on that side and work on your foundation, for example, without the permission of the other side. So we're still working all that out. And I think I, again, I think this is going to be an incredibly interesting story unless uh, Paul Blahakis just decides to fold, which I don't see why he would do. Let's face it, MSU FCU is building a 105-foot brick wall with no windows right next to his patio, right next to his property. Why should he be excited? Right? Why should he be taking away all of the sun on that side, creating a rather soulless wall, if you ask me? I mean, it's nice, right? It's nice that they're going to do some brick color variations, but it's going to be a 105 foot brick wall with no windows on it. So why should Paul Vlahakis be super excited about this project? And he, he has a big lever. You know what I would do if I were him? I would ask them to make like the bottom half of it, just paint it like off white by a big projector and some speakers and big MSU football and basketball games. You just blast them up there and build a patio. Maybe you're going to help them want, come to an I agreement want, now, Andrew. I, I want some fees. I want some some money off this deal if this comes to fruition. I want it to be, I need to trademark this very fast before I get well, robbed is, of my million dollar funny. idea. I mean, speaking of who gets paid for this design, right? This is one of the interesting questions to my mind is who forgot to get this done, right? Like who forgot to, to make sure this step was taken care of? Because this project has been in the works for months and months and months. And so somebody should have anticipated that this could be a problem. So right. Yeah, because it sounds but, like it's going from a nice patio to sitting in an alleyway. It really is. I mean, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Now, it'll have that Lohakis, feel. Lohakis has wanted to redevelop the Dublin Square property. Let's be clear. He, he doesn't want to hold on to that forever as a restaurant, according to his, I mean, most recent moves he wants to redevelop the dublin square property but in the meantime you know there's a restaurant there with a patio and you're right emily it would feel like an alley well i want us to just briefly address one last story which is the one i wrote was an update about school board and just for our listeners to bring them up to speed the school board did not officially vote but more or less came to a consensus of the metrics they would use to consider whether it would be safe to go back to school in January, which is what their continuity of learning plan 
allows as an option. So they'll consider on the one hand, the percent positivity rate for testing within Ingham County and also the cases per a million. Our test positivity rate when they met on Monday was 6.3%. And our cases per a million in Ingham was, I believe, it was over 230. I think it was 237, which was alarmingly high. That would put the school in a not opening range. The 6.3% was opening with caution. And they would also be considering, was there anyone infected in a specific building? Was there ongoing transmission in a building? Legally, from the state of Michigan, they also have to consider death and hospitalization rates in the area. Um, Our hospitals are um, reaching capacity at this point. So that might be a consideration. Um, the situation can change by January, but they'll have to certify the plan on December 14th, I believe. And then as the board and superintendent Dory Lyko pointed out, there's also other concerns. You might have four or five teachers who contract COVID and then maybe a handful of teachers who work with them and have to quarantine. So you might not have a large outbreak in the building. You might be able to stop it, but if you have five, 10 teachers who can't come in, there's only so many substitutes in the area. So schools could have to go back online because of staffing issues was something that was addressed. So Emily, one other thing that's going to change by January is who's on the school board and the new school board members are seated in January, not now. Can you talk a little bit about what your sense is, given what you learned in interviews with those folks about how things might shift on the school board around this issue or around other issues? Do you have a sense of that yet? I don't have a sense. I will admit part of it is because those interviews were two months ago. So I don't remember the finer details. I don't believe any of the women who were elected are against reopening. From what I recall, most clearly, Debbie Walton wanted at least more direct communication between the school board and parents. Um, She was frustrated that public comment is just the public commenting with no feedback, usually from the school board. So she thought parents were at a disadvantage about trying to work with the trustees. Um, They didn't run on a platform specifically of reopening And all three women are concerned with equity issues, which have kind of been considered at every twist and turn and the debate of whether to go back to school and whether or not. And there's when you go back, there could be concerns. When you stay home, there's concerns. Um, I don't recall them spelling out specifically what they think should be done. And our numbers were much better, too, when they last spoke. Interesting. Okay, I guess we'll see how it plays out. I, once again, am just so, so glad I am not having to go to school during a pandemic. I I do not envy anybody having to figure that out. I really don't. We can tell you're young because you're not saying you're so glad you don't have kids and have to figure out how the heck you're going to take care of them while you're working from home and doing everything else. Because that's my relation to it is like, I'm so glad my son has grown and I don't have to answer the question of how I'm supposed to do my job at home and also teach my kid from home, which is really hard. Uh, let's be very real. I am 22 years old. I barely know how to keep myself together. <laughs> let's, let's, not, let's not get ahead of ourselves or anything here. 
Now we're going to move on to an interview Andrew conducted with Mesa Sitar, the secretary of East Lansing Info's board of directors, who also held a leadership position in ASMSU. So I'm here with Mesa Sitar. She is an MSU student and also a member of Eli's board. Mesa, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about what life is like as a Michigan State University student right now. I think that's something uh, people have very polarized opinions about students and their behaviors right now. And I'm curious to learn from you what it's what it's like on the, the inside, so to speak. Yeah, um, I think a small group of students are kind of giving us a, a lot of us a bad rap. Um, most students that I know are, you know, just kind of really bored sitting in their homes, um, doing their homework. It's kind of tough to have this sprung on you at the last minute um, and have, you know, I'm a senior in college and it feels like my last year of education is really lacking. Um, although it is nice to be able to spend some more time enjoying East Lansing as a city, I think. Mm-hmm. Have you, I guess, what's the sort of changes other than the class time that sort of allowed you to, to enjoy East Lansing more? And I guess what, what sort of things of East Lansing have you enjoyed getting to, to experience more? Um, I've been, just been enjoying the parks um, and the trails that they have here. Uh, it's a lot more extensive than I thought. Um, I've kind of been able to try going to a few different East Lansing restaurants. Um, and I just typically most of my time is spent on MSU's campus. And now that uh, the majority of it is, is spent off campus, um, just walking around the neighborhoods every day um, and seeing a lot more than I normally would. Right. So definitely a, a very much different uh, sort of physical space parameters to where you're going. And that sort of changes things, I guess. Yeah. I Typically, I feel more like a student who happens to live in the East Lansing community. And this year, I feel more like a resident who happens to be a student. Interesting. That is fascinating. So I want to move on to discuss your work with the Eli board. And first off, I want to ask you just how you got involved with Eli in the first place. Yeah. So Alice ended up coming to one of our student government meetings one year when I was running for office the first year. And we ended up talking afterwards. And she said, you know, if you ever want to come right for Eli, just let me know. Um, and so I contacted her a few months later and wrote a couple articles. And that was kind of the start of it all. And then how did that transfer into your membership on the board? Um, I had written a bit for Eli. Uh, Alice and I just were in contact about a variety of different things. Um, I know I worked on doing some campaign finance things for Eli, um, looking into it for the city council election a couple years ago. Um, and a few board members had stepped down and Alice was looking to bring on some younger members, more age diversity to the board. And she suggested both me and Anna East, who is a high school student, to bring a youthful perspective uh, since we're a big part of the city. And the board said, why not bring on both? Cool. How do you think that perspective has informed um, your work with Eli's board and I guess how do you how do you see how that you and Anna's perspective have have maybe changed some of the way Eli's board views things or handles things since you guys have have joined? Yeah, um, I mean the reality is that MSU students make up a really big part of the city, and so I think it's important that 
when things in the city are talked about, I think it's important that we attend um, or that we have a presence at city council meetings uh, in local media. I mean, MSU students, uh, not only do we live in East Lansing, not only do we, you know, go through downtown um, and participate in a lot of the off-campus events, um, but, you know, whether it's positive or negative, we do have an impact on the city. And so I think it's it's been helpful to be able to be in on conversations in the board where we're talking about, um, you know, how to report on, say, community relations with MSU, um, just bringing in a student perspective to a lot of the conversations that we have on the board, um, I think has been helpful. Um, it's been helpful for me to hear how East Lansing residents perceive the way that MSU um, is interacting with the community, but I think it's also been helpful for me to be able to say, you know, this is this is the type of thing that students care about. These are the issues that we have in the city and things like that. Right, and I think just to offer my little two cents as I've been an East Lansing resident for all my life, except when I've gone to college and I I went to Syracuse, and that's a very a very big sort of town and gown split. So I think it's interesting, your perspective on sort of bridging that divide and recognizing that students are an incredibly large stakeholder and part of this community, um, for better and for worse, I think is something that's that's really been brought to the forefront with COVID to, to bring it full circle. Mm-hmm. Do you think, just from the returning to your perspective as a student, is there something that's maybe missing in all of the response to sort of trying to change behaviors with COVID, like like alternative programming or something to, to draw kids away from partying and stuff like that? Um, and I think, it, again, like you noted and we, we know is this is a very small group of visible, loud students causing a lot of the problem. Um, but do you think some absence of some other thing to do or some other option has has played a part in that? I think that there's just a very unclear uh, or there's a lack of jurisdiction in the minds of MSU students. So we live off campus and MSU has a pretty vague off-campus policy um, when it comes to sanctions and punishments in the past. Um, and so I think students are under the impression that MSU maybe doesn't really control what they do off campus. And at the same time, the city doesn't feel like a visible presence when you're living, you know, in Bailey neighborhood and all of your neighbors are students. Um, It kind of just feels, um, I think that students maybe are not aware of the, who, who would be handing out the sanctions um, for things like breaking the health code violations. And I think that's become a lot more clear as students have broken them um, and uh, been sanctioned by either the city or by MSU as a whole. Um, and so I think that that discrepancy is something that people struggled with at first. Um, but yeah, like as I said before, it is a small group of students, and I think that for those group of students, and I, I don't know um, because I, you know I'm, I I can't tell you what they're thinking, but I think perhaps the the distance between their own actions and the consequences that it has is hard to visualize. So I know when we had the Harper outbreak this summer, um, Linda Vale said that a couple months later she could tie multiple deaths in the community to that. 
But the problem is that's months after the action and people aren't really tying their own actions to someone's death. And so I think that's, that's part of the problem. Right. Well, Mesa, thank you very much for joining me today. This was a a really interesting, quick conversation. And I think it's a really valuable perspective that you bring. So thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we go, Alice, would you like to say anything about fundraising? I would. And that's that I need people's help because I've had a week. So we all lived through the election. But in addition to that, I had to go to Nashville, Tennessee to help my parents uh, who are elderly to deal with some medical stuff, fortunately not COVID. And the result of that and balancing East Lansing's reporting needs with you 2 and dealing with everything means I am a little bit behind in terms of asking people for money. So folks can help me out with this chicken and egg problem I have every year of trying to help bring the news while I'm also help fundraising for the news. Go to eastlansinginfo.news slash donate, donate now, and we can double your gift with matching funds. We really need your help. We're in our sustainability campaign for 2021. If you love what we do, you love what we do for this community in terms of being watchdogs, keeping track of stuff, using Freedom of Information Act, putting the dots together, keeping you informed, helping people understand what's happening in their neighborhoods and their lives and their taxes. Help us out now. EastLansingInfo.news slash donate. Well, and I think something I, I want to point out really quick, too, is that your donation to Eli not only helps you yourself stay informed, but other people too. And that Eli really is a, it's, you can get on the internet, you can, you can read Eli's reporting. So at any donation to Eli is not just something that helps you be informed, but helps the community be informed. So it really, it really is a public service. And I like, I, and we I help other that. communities be informed because as we do our reporting, other people dealing with the same cast of characters in terms of the players who come here to do business they end up learning what we're finding out about them. And we find that information gets shared uh, across the region, across the Midwest, across the nation, as people learn from our reporting. So you're helping out a lot of people when you help out Eli. You are. If you go to eastlansinginfo.news, you could also check out this weekend's I wrote about why I report for Eli and why this job is important to me. Um, so if you're on the fence about donating, hopefully that makes you reconsider and you um find what I have to say interesting, but I wanted to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. Don't forget to go to our website, check out what we have written, make a donation, and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.